We were listening to I Cure by the singer and songwriter Ivo Dimchev. Welcome to iArt New York, our 11th segment. We have a special guest with us tonight. That's Lisa Levy. Welcome. Hello. And she's also a co-host of Dr. Lisa yes. Gives Shit every Thursday, 2 to 3. Tune in. There you go. Let me just say a few words about iArt New York, which is a talk show that brings you reviews of exhibitions in New York City area, as well as interviews with artists, performers, curators, and gallerists. Today, we have the pleasure of having the visual, conceptual, and performance artist, Lisa Levy will delve into questions related to her career and gain insight into her process and her experiences as a Brooklyn-based artist. But first, we'd like to introduce our program and a bit about ourselves. iArt New York is brought to you by your hosts, myself, Isabella Gola and Rebecca Major. I am an artist, independent curator, and, and I work as a curator for the visual arts and design department at the Polish Cultural Institute, New York. And Rebecca is an artist studying Masters of Art History and a curatorial intern at the Jewish Museum. So I'm getting back to our guest, Lisa Levy. Um, Lisa wears many creative hats. She is a conceptual artist, a painter, performance artist, comedic performer, and marketing director here at Radio Free Brooklyn, where she also, as she mentioned, has her own talk show, which we'll discuss a little bit more. Um, her artwork has been exhibited at the New Museum, the Bronx Museum, the Pulse Art Fair, Christopher Stout Gallery, White Columns, Artist Space, Printed Matter, and Schroeder and Romero Galleries, among others. Lisa's talk show, as mentioned a moment ago, is called Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. It is part performance where she plays herself, but with the added self-proclaimed title of, quote, doctor. She's had celebrity guests on, um, such as Joe Gordon-Levitt, Michael Musto, and Amy Schumer, as well as many artists, musicians, and other creative professionals in the art field. In her talk show, as well as its live version, she gives, quote, sessions to, quote, patients. There is a public element to these sessions, transforming them into performance. During the sessions, the patient may delve into accounts of their upbringing, formative experiences, or any myriad of personal reflections that result in often emotionally revealing discussions. Lisa has performed this character since 2001 in varied formats, stage, street, in private sessions, and on the radio. And they have been performed widely, such as at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the Brooklyn Museum, Joe's Pub, the Woolly Mammoth Theater, Brick Theater, and uh, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and her work has been covered in the Elle magazine, Huffington Post, among others. Switching gears, one of her more recent performance pieces was a reworking of Marina Abramovich's 750-hour 
piece entitled The Artist is Present, which was performed at MoMA in 2010. Lisa's version, alternately titled The Artist is Humbly Present, was on view in January of 2016 at the Christopher Stout Gallery in Brooklyn. For that piece, Lisa placed two toilets in a gallery and over the course of two days sat in the nude on a toilet seated across visitors. The piece was covered in numerous press publications at the time, including Artnet News, Bushwick Daily, and Time Out. Now, uh, focusing on Lisa's paintings, I have actually a lot of questions for you because I know the least about these, but your paintings are text-based and often respond or borrowed from quotes taken during the psychotherapy sessions, or that's maybe how they started, I read. She's nodding now. (laughs) Interesting. Oh, well, you know. Or we'll Just, talk about we'll it. We'll talk more. about yeah. it, yeah. So Better. aesthetically, they are white text, usually on color background, on canvas or board. To me, I, I see them as a hybrid between Jenny Holzer's narrative and commentary-driven art and on an aesthetic level, influenced by the conceptual artist on Kawara and his date paintings. Some of the past text that was included in these paintings are, examples are, quote, what would my mother say about all of this, unquote, and, quote, pharmacists are the new bartenders, or your charm is also going to end up being your downfall, and lastly, it's easy for me to offend people with truth. (laughs) This was on the website. She's like, I don't remember this. Um, And also, you make assemblage sculptural pieces. I saw one work online, which was a mirror attached to a trophy base with the words, stop blaming yourself, written on the mirror in black block letters. A quote by you, when you describe your work, is that it's half serious, half joking. I find humor in truth. I know my work is funny and absurd, but I'm also making a point, end quote. One of my favorite ongoing pieces is your the radio show and the uh, Dr. Lisa gives a shit personality the psychotherapist Um, expanding a little further on this therapy performance as I mentioned you're open about not being institutionally accredited and you add the disclaimer SP as in self-proclaimed after your title there's an ironic element revealed by transforming something that has traditionally been a private moment between therapist and patient into a public performance. The concept of therapy as spectacle is an interesting proposition. What does it mean to publicize the private? Um, In a certain way, you could argue that it attempts to rid the stigma or guilt associated with keeping something secret or private. What are your thoughts on that? well, first of all, thank you. That was that sounded like some. Is that was that all really about me? I, I mean, that was pretty overwhelming. Well, wow, it's pretty good. Uh, all packed into, you know, like uh, thirty years of work. All packed into. Well, I guess okay. So anyway, um, so the thing about um, doing therapy sort of publicly is, first of all, I think that people. There's a lot of anxiety and shame when people think about what their issues are in their own minds. I think that sharing it in a therapy situation helps. But I think a lot of times putting it out in the world for real um, really takes the power out of the shame and um, negativity. And that when you, when you take it out and put it on display and look at it, whatever your issue is, 
it really doesn't seem that bad. It takes that magnification of rolling it around in your own brain away. And a lot of times things are just really funny when, you know, we find out the things that we all worry about. I mean, you know, I they're, they, they can seem really funny. And a lot of times if you're out in the world and you hear, and, you know, if you can put that out there and have people, like, laugh with you about it, then that can be really pretty cathartic, I think, and very comforting. Mm-hmm. Psychoanalysis has to do a lot with Freud's theory, and I was wondering if you apply that, if you looked at it, studied that before in your life, and how it was updated later, like Jacques Lacan or mm-hmm. any of the theories. Are you interested in that academic uh, aspect of it? Um, I call myself a hobbyist, a therapy hobbyist. I have read some of that stuff. I I wouldn't say um, I'm a heavyweight intellectual with deep knowledge of any of that. Freud is probably the um, figure that I've read the most about or read the most of. I um, I think that therapy for most practicing therapists today is kind of a hybrid and every therapist, uh, you know, being a good therapist is sort of like being a good artist. It's learning about the history of the practice, all the therapists, all the philosophies, and just kind of taking bits and pieces from them and then uh, developing your own. I mean, there are very different schools of psychotherapy and stuff like that, but I think for me, you know, it isn't strictly one type of theory or another. I think Freud was a genius and like got the ball rolling incredibly innovative, but I also think that, you know, a lot of his work is outdated and just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that to be accredited, one needs to still be associated with the Freudian, like the IPA, whatever. Maybe the IPA. you know more about it. No, I mean, most, yeah, psychotherapy is definitely a practice that has been developed from Freud's practices, but I, it's, it's, it's been expanded on in so many ways. Yeah. Freud was actually really good at getting attention for himself, which is a lot of the reason why he's the person known for it. You know, there are other people that were also practicing around the same time and you know the whole fight with Jung and all that stuff but Freud was good at like getting attention Mm -hmm. I find it interesting the way in which your therapy project becomes in effect a questioning of the notion of formal modes of accreditation which are normally controlled through the psychiatric establishment since your sessions are situated outside of the established institutional accreditation system in a sense they reject and in effect, are in protest of them. It could be seen as that, and the notion of formal validation. I feel that they demonstrate a new model uh, that lies outside of the mainstream. Specifically, I think that your project raises questions about how can we as a society create alternate modes of self-care and healing, which includes mental health care and medical health care, this kind of revolves back to what you were kind of talking about, but is this something you were thinking of when you formulated this project or were you aware of this uh, kind of protest element? Um, in the work? I think more, well, I mean, um, I would say as far as being the protesting therapy, um, I've had a lot of, I've been in therapy since I was 18 pretty much. 
my father had serious depression. He'd been hospitalized, shock therapy, all that stuff. And I inherited, I think, some of those genetics. Um, I also had a very difficult childhood. Um, you know, my parents weren't very, you know, um, I didn't have a lot of nurturing, let's put it that way. Um, and um, so I was, I had a lot of emotional struggles um, and I'd been in therapy a lot and I just feel, I, I have a lot of stories about very, very disappointing therapists, therapists that made me angry, therapists that I think were irresponsible and I think that um, I feel like, you know, anyone can there's it's not a self-regulating business so Mm -hmm. it kind of you know i am kind of angry at that the other part is that i instinctually realized later after i started doing it that i have really i mean this is still something i'm dealing with today in a lot of ways is that i have really big authority issues and a lot of that has to do with my relationship with my parents and um i think that you know, giving the finger to authority, even though in sort of a passive-aggressive, cowardly way, because that's how that's how I roll as far as authority goes. Because um, I'm really afraid and angry at authority in general. Um, Tom Tenney, the director of the station, could probably fill you in about my issues personally because I've talked about it with him but anyway so he's helped me a lot actually I've practiced on him but the thing is is that um so authority it's sort of like I'm giving the finger to the authority the therapy psychology establishment but then at the same time I'm also establishing myself as an authority but at the same time because I make fun of myself and say I have no formal degree I don't really have the responsibility of being the authority and I allow the other person to like question anything I say Mm -hmm. so it's it's kind of convoluted Right, so it's really multi-aspected and yeah, serves many functions for both you and the patient. Yeah, I find I feel like I'm manipulating a situation where I can be in a, an authority situation, but still feel comfortable. Which is, but it's um, you know, obviously something I'm not, yeah. you know, I that I have issues with. Yeah, this actually brings me to my next question because it relates to the your dynamic with the patient. But one of the other things that I found interesting is the performance aspect of the therapy sessions, which opens a discourse about authorship in the regard that during the session, the patient takes on as much of a role, if not more than you, in, mm-hmm. in a sense. They, they become the lead actor. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about this collaborative um, situation that you set up with a patient? Um, I... I think you know I I I like that I I feel like I'm giving I've never really felt like I never performed before I started doing this therapy thing like I'm not somebody that's dying to get on stage or I like performing but it what I haven't been I'm not driven to perform um, as a performer you know like I've I there are people who just love want to perform all the time and I kind of like but anyway um so I you know it's an interesting question because I don't really think about it that way I just want that person to shine so uh, and be interesting so I feel like I will have 
enabled that and that I'll feel good, mm-hmm. which sounds so sounds a lot more altruistic than it is somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it looks like you take this element of psychoanalysis and therapy and you apply it to your art practice. You take it into a performative um, stage on the screen and I mean on the screen Just and on the stage. Uh, you do you write scripts? No. How, how do you um, how do you navigate with that element between art and you know the radio, uh, the radio genre and the performance? How do you navigate those different spheres? And how is it different performing that life with people on the street or um, and on then s- I'm actually on the doing stage. a stage show a week from today. Did you know that? Did no, you guys know tell that? us more. You have to come. I'm Was doing that um, the satellite so, art fair. No, I'm doing psychotherapy live. I'm, it's a twenty. It's a part of the Bad Theater Festival. So that's next Friday at seven at the Brick Theater. Let's do that. What's the Let's exact go. date? October eighteenth. October eighteenth. Yeah, it's a lineup, and I'm inviting people, but other people are going to ha- be there. To you know, mm. there's four groups inviting people that night. I haven't done it in a long time, so I'm really excited about it. And in that performance, you will be bringing up audience members? Audience volunteers. And so the idea, this is how I started out doing this. This is my original idea, um, which I actually kind of ditched after doing it for a few years because it's such a pain in the ass to organize a live show every month. You have a full-time, more than a full-time job and all this other stuff. So I stopped doing that because it wasn't worth the energy. But um, Because you bring your own... You have to couch, right? No, no it's more about I don't think unless unless you do a local show by yourself every month, you can you can't imagine how difficult it is to get audience. That's the whole oh, problem right. of performing right. live for every solo performer and it's not worth it. Right. You uh, I remember having a conversation with you about a month and a half ago. You had done a um a benefit event oh, yeah. for Chashama. And you performed the same piece, but you had a um, those. I had like a private office, private office sort of. that was sectioned off with uh, the couch. Yeah, I have a couch. real, I have a genuine therapist, authentic couch, and all the whole set. Yeah, so you had the setup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also have pre- prescription pads, right? My own personalized prescription pads that say "state." Everybody thinks they're real; they look real, but then when you look, and it says "state of insanity." instead of state of New Jersey. So I have those and I use them as business cards, but I also use them to sort of write practical advice for for at the end of each session. So somebody has sort of like a souvenir, piece of art or and like a memory of yeah. you know to help I them. I saw those online and they are really witty because you've changed all of these mm-hmm. things that other yeah. it took me a while to figure out what SP was for instance I uh, thought that was a real term you know so I was uh-huh. looking it up like what is a SP a stand uh, you know abbreviation uh-huh. in the medical um yeah, right, lingo right. and it means self-proclaimed right yeah. right yeah. um and but also the the giving away of these pieces of paper it reminds me also of conceptual art because a lot of times conceptual art was the the memory of the event right you know, yeah and mm-hmm. they're in a very simple mm-hmm. text-based mm-hmm. object. Yeah, it took me, I mean, I started doing the project in 2001 and I made up those, um, it came to me in like 2009, so mm-hmm. 
you know, that's how long I've been using And then you also uh, performed this, or no, it wasn't a performance. It was like a podcast version from September 2014 through February 2015 at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was in collaboration with artist Rebecca Norton. The piece was called What Makes You So Special? Yeah. What Can you tell us more about this collaboration? What did it look like? It was yeah. in the lobby, right? Okay. Yeah, it was um yeah, it was at the Harvey in the Harvey building or whatever. It was a audiovisual installation. I um went to people's offices, homes, studios, and I did a therapy session on them and then I edited that and then I took a picture of them lying on the couch and I wrote up like I had a prescription for them and I wrote up like a doctor's report. And so the way it was displayed was each of these um, subjects had um, a frame with all the, you know, all the stuff in it and around it and headphones that you could listen to them listen to the interviews or the session so So you listen to the therapy sessions so each photograph had its own um set of headphones you can listen to that one oh wow yeah it was like a big just each person had their own little display with all these elements and then uh, headphones and stuff like that i did do a couple of nights of live therapy there as well but mostly it was an audiovisual display and um it was an amazing experience i mean i got to i i got to include um i wound i wanted a range of people so i had like a hospice nurse and i talked to her about death and i had um a fireman and talked to him about like what made him like wanna what made him special you know mm-hmm. like that seemed really special and um just I also was really fortunate that the president of BAM uh, gave me time, and she was in it, and as well as uh, McLean Thomas, who's you know famous famous artist. Yeah, I heard that she has the prescription hung up in her bathroom. I think framed and hung up. She told me she was going to frame it, and somebody told me the other day, you know, McLean has this framed and hung up, and. you know, I had a comedian who's just, you know, pretty well known now, um, Joe Firestone, and I had my friend's teenage son, um, and Martin Kramer, and so I really had, like, a great experience because I had such a wide range of what makes you so special, society, and, uh, mm-hmm. it was great. I mean, I, I really got a lot out of doing that. It was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, in a short period of time. Five, six months or so. Yeah. Well, it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. And it, all of those interviews were collected within that time frame? Yep. Mm-hmm. Collected. I did I did have a budget to have somebody edit them for me because I couldn't have done that. I'm not mm-hmm. that good at... That's not my thing. So I didn't have to edit them, which was huge. Mm-hmm. So as far as performance art, how different it is to be a host of a radio show and to act on a stage and perform it live, interacting with the audience and, and people live. Is there a different dynamic or do you apply like the same mechanisms? Which one feels more like performance art? Are you just different kind of you know, um, animal in those cases? Not, not, How do you navigate? not so much. I mean, one of the things I love about the radio show is that I don't have to get dressed up. 
<laughs> so, so like going on stage is always like, oh, I got to go out tonight. I got to get dressed up. Um, that's why I'm not like like performers. People that love to perform never think like that. But um, it's it's you know the like I said for me honestly a big obstacle is just doing the work to get get the word out about the show and get the audience to show up. Like if I had a producer or I was well known enough where I didn't have to like advertise or worry if people are going to show up. Um, maybe I would feel differently, but that's that's really a big difference as far as being on stage. I mean, you know, being on stage in front of a live crowd is really, you know, energizing. I mean, um, it can also be really scary and it can be really horrible and disappointing. But at this point, I feel like I been doing it mm-hmm. you know and i mean if i got a big gig maybe i don't i mean for most of the stuff i do that's like it, the stakes aren't that high i feel comfortable doing it but you know when you are feeding off the audience and you're there's a back and forth i mean i think a lot for any performer whether no matter what you're performing um it's about being on stage and being with your audience and being tuned into your audience and wanting to connect with them and i think uh, you know, I've hosted so many benefits and live shows now that I feel like comfortable doing that. So for this performance, you're gonna call an audience, a volunteer audience, and then they'll be um, they'll be yeah. So amplified. and I, there's a lot of videos. Up, there's videos of it online. Yeah. Um, so on how, my YouTube channel, how long channel. will each session be? Um, hopefully less than 10 minutes oh okay so really quick really quick relatively to like it would be like a Lacanian thing you know they're famous for like ending the session when there's like kind of a Lacan in his so in his philosophy of um, Uh how to conduct therapy um they're not the standard 50 minutes he will cut well he's passed now but his method is to cut the patient off when he feels that there's a moment of breakthrough it's usually um a verbal cue like um language related to language if they oh. say something that feels like oh well why did you say that word let's leave it there type of thing so let's he wants think about them, that. he want he punctuates their their thought by yeah. breaking it off and giving them the room to explore it on their own yeah. i guess exactly. yeah i mean that makes sense i mean that's you have to have a real intuition about that to do that mm-hmm. uh i hmm. i wouldn't i mean i could sort of imagine it but i that doesn't you know that's interesting hmm. um um, what I try to do is I ask for like somebody's got an issue when I do it live like I'm really like wanting somebody to have an issue before they come on stage so I can help them define it and then I sort of give out my point of view and then I will bring the audience in and say what do you guys think because okay. what I really am hoping to get is kind of a big group discussion about what that person's issue is because um, it's just great when everybody's involved and people have strong feelings and I think it's really great for the person on the couch Yeah, but a lot of times and they're always laying down we're not looking there's no eye contact between me and that person on the couch because they're supposed to be free associating Mm -hmm. wow it sounds super interesting so um, you know and people are is it funny or serious and I try to make it funny you know I try to add humor into it 
where we're on that person's side to try to get them to relax. But I have been, you know, people, I have been told, you know, like people say, you know, you've done more for me in 13 minutes than my therapist, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, I have definitely rung a few bells that way, but it's always good food for thought. I mean, it's fun. I do find it interesting, and it kind of brought me to my next question, but you already answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. Because maybe, and it's also a bit of a, a movie uh, review. So I just saw the movie Joker, and I thought it was a great movie because it's really a haunting and intelligent portrayal of the decline of an individual's mental health. There are scenes where he talks with a therapist who seems very distant. She's not engaged. She's preoccupied. But that's that's a side note. But mm-hmm. what I thought was interesting is that there is a film out that's hugely popular that is creating a discussion around mental illness. And so I feel like your work is also and really pushing for that. Mm-hmm. And what you're describing is ultimate uh, yeah. discussion, like a group discussion um, yeah, I'm saying, yeah, mental illness is okay, or, you know, like, it's not, it's not like a, it's just normal in a way, you know, we're not, we're all just trying to like, we're all faking it, come on. But uh, what's really interesting, actually, is how society, because I started doing this in 2001, and society has really changed a lot in their attitude about um, therapy, psychotherapy, mental health, emotional issues because a film like this wouldn't have been possible or would not people wouldn't have been able to deal with it at all when I I think when I started doing psychotherapy because what I do is sort of like you know halfway between serious and funny so there's an entertainment aspect you know and in the entertainment business since I've been doing this like there's been so many more things about therapy like Lisa Kudrow did like a show about Hmm. you know therapy um with um on Skype and you know with Skype patients there's just been and therapists have shown up over and over and over and then TV shows like therapy is a really psychotherapy is a really common trope in our culture now Mm mm-hmm and it's a lot more than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's, you know, I think it's great. I think it's great, too, especially considering that we live in a culture where we throw, you know, medication on a problem. And I think I've read it or heard it said that medication doesn't work without talk therapy. So ultimately, it's the, the engagement with another individual and working through through language that we can really... Um, move through our problems and that just throwing medicine on it is not you know medication and over medication is really not the solution no I mean I have um you know I'm on medication I was actually an inpatient on a study on on Prozac one of the, probably one of the first studies in 93 oh. Oh. so um I'm a big believer in medication uh in certain not for everyone and not as a substitute for therapy certainly I think putting feelings into words is really important. I think that a big problem that we all have is our egos lead to denial of our feelings because we want to believe certain things about ourselves. And that's really, I think, where we wind up in trouble because if we we see a, we need to see a version of ourselves that's not real, that means that we have trouble accepting ourselves 
we don't really know the we're not going to match up out there i mean you can see that in our president like he seems just totally like what he says doesn't make any sense and you can imagine like what's going to happen well you not with him i mean whatever but Mm -hmm. you know we've all seen our friends or people we know like wind up being hit hard with the truth Mm -hmm. ourselves and that's what i'm talking about really yeah better to get little bits of uh, reality than one big dose (laughs) well to really appreciate who you are and like i and to like be okay with it like i have a lot of i still i mean i have a lot of problems i've you know and i don't I'm at the point in my life where I'm not trying to solve my problems. I'm trying to cope with my problems. I'm trying not to get in my own way. I'm trying to figure out ways where when I feel like try not to get depressed or to deal with being depressed or whatever it is Mm -hmm. or self-esteem issues that I'm not going to solve where I just try to manage them and not put them on other people. Like, do you think this is good? What do you think about, you know, like not be a black hole for reinforcement, things like that? Yeah, that takes strength. (laughs) (laughs) Exhaustion, maybe. I don't know. You mentioned Trump and and before then how you like to navigate between the authority figure and the subject of therapy. And we are all witnessing how Trump is abusing its authority all the time, going way and beyond there is also, um, in the public discourse, there's element of humor that helps us cope with this situation. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't stand looking at the news mm-hmm. just because it just makes me so depressed. Thinking about the collective mm-hmm. psychology, thinking yeah. about the collective psyche of mm-hmm. the public discourse or, and mm-hmm. how we relate to that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of comedy shows like The Late Show with Stephen Colbert yeah. that help us cope with it. Right. And I, do you, how do you relate to humor with that? I mean, uh, there's a lot of humor in your work. What role humor has for you? What's the function? In I think general? it's a very important agent in dealing with the trauma right now that we are dealing with in this political climate with this executive power in, in place. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, as far as Trump goes, I mean... Trump is actually you really have to leave it up to the experts because there it's he's such he's so absurd in his own mind in his own way that I think you know I think if you're a comedian you better have a good fucking good Trump joke before you get out there so I think that's tough but and you know these night shows these late night shows are experts so I think and but what we're talking about is the way that humor creates a feeling of closeness and relatedness yeah and that we're all in this together which is something that you know is something um think in my own life i think that um i try to make fun of myself in order to cope and not to take myself too seriously i think i try not to take myself too seriously because i think um it just you know it's like ego thing again where it's just you're I'd rather be happily surprised than horribly disappointed. I think is really what it what it is. Like I'm like, oh, I don't know. Although my husband last night gave me this lecture about how I have to talk myself up more and how I'd be so much more successful if I 
only said, you know, talked better about myself and shit like that. So, in particular know. situations, like um, with gallerists, or yeah, like in art, mm-hmm. art. It's so art. hard in those moments. I'm so bad at it. Well, I always feel <laughs> like they're. I always feel like they're always. Those people are. You know, they see right through that. I mean, you can't, they know, like, they know everybody's there. If you talk to somebody who has power in the art world, they know you're going to want to impress them. So, mm. like. So, they just, just turn off, like, when well, they like, start Well, like, don't do exact, like, why would you want to have that relation? You Then you're putting yourself in a category of somebody who's, like, who's not seeing them. You're not seeing them. You're seeing them as somebody who can do something for you. And I don't want to have that relationship with anybody. Mm. Ever. Well. If they could really help me, I would. But <laughs> Thinking of humor and how you activate the humor, I can't help myself to not think about the artist's uh, uh, humbly present, mm-hmm. yeah, let's which talk is about that. a durational performance mm-hmm. and in which you sat down naked on the toilet mm-hmm. for two days mm-hmm. from January 30th to 31st, mm-hmm. 2016. It was actually... Uh, uh, Christopher Stout Gallery. It's Christopher Stout Projects, to be on to be accurate, I guess. Right, and that was referencing or reworking. We'll discuss how it really relates and renders Marina Abramovich, the artist is present uh, from MoMA performance in 2010, mm-hmm. uh, w- in which she uh, sat in the atrium of MoMA for 750 <laughs> hours in which visitors were lining up outside of MoMA for hours, days waiting, and then just to interact with the celebrity artist and sat down on an IKEA chair in front of IKEA table. And to me, it's interesting, like this humble middle-class tools and props that she's using, but she's like the celebrity and VIP and the plastic surgery. And she's dressed in these like uh, queen gowns and dresses red white whatnot and she's graciously offering the gaze and that was reviewed as very therapeutic to some people and so in your performance which you took on such a challenging you know iconic gesture of uh, Marina Abramovich you know the icon of performance art and durational performance and self-inflicting pain in you know in 70s, 80s. Um, so what were you uh, reworking in that performance and what were you re-establishing as the new perspective? What were you claiming for yourself from that form that she has um, established? Well, um, Marina Bramovic, I mean, I have a lot of respect for her work before that time. Let's not make any doubt about that, but... Um, I think, you know, I think she is pretty arrogant and I've audio booked her biography. I think she is really, you know, we talk about ego being a problem and I think I, it really like, it made me kind of crazy the way that she elevated herself and the way the art world um, rallied around that and I thought that was a very symbolic gesture of how seriously every the art world her and it was such an emperor's new clothes literally um which is kind of what i did no clothes but the thing is is that um i was actually motivated by i came up with that idea um 
one morning after I had a particularly aggravating night in an art world uh, situation that I was participating in. And just like I was just really angry and fed up about the bullshit and how everybody thought they were so fabulous and the way I was treated and all this stuff. And I'm like, fuck this shit. And then I had that idea. It just came to me. Can you elaborate? What was the situation? No, not really, because it's involves it involves <laughs> other people that that you may well, may no not know. Mentioned. There are no. I don't really want to. I mean, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, there's one every minute. Right. I could. There was one particular one in particular. That's what motivated me. Um, but so when I did that, I wasn't really just focused on Marina Abramovic in particular. I was using her as a symbol for what I thought was bullshit about the art world. And um, so that's how that came about. And um, I don't really mind being naked um, in public. And I think that comes from all my time growing up from when I was like a tween until like, you know, Whatever my mother always took me to Lomans, and I don't know if you know that, but they had communal dressing rooms. It's a discount store, and so I was oh, all with other women, not with men. No, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> but all through my child, you know, teenage years, because they didn't have kids' clothes. But all through my teenage years, my prom dress, all through college, my mother—that's the only place she would take me shopping. So I was always in the position of changing in front of a room full of women with me, that was all mirrors. So, including bathing suits and everything else. So, I think that's why, with my mother being fairly critical, which is pretty fucking traumatic, if I or like has definitely like had an effect. But hmm. uh, I did get some interesting clothes. I'll say that because it was all these so weird. So, is is like a love hate thing now? Um, like I the, when the, when you hear the word, is it like well, oh, went out of business a few years ago. Um, is it a love hate thing? I, you know, my mother was, it's more about like my mother and her ideas about what I should wear and shopping and stuff. And the fact that she cared about discount and bought me a lot of weird things to wear, but then also like didn't like it if I went out without a bra in the sixties, like everybody did and like said that I looked like I was trying to sell my wares. So... <laughs> So there's, it's a complicated issue, but now I enjoy clothes, you know, as much as I do and, you know, like occasionally. And so I'm glad, and I like shop. I mean, I don't love shopping, but I, you know, I appreciate some of the skills that I have picked up from her. So could we come back but to I the think, performance? Yeah, I think I interrupted you about. Um, yeah. The performance. Uh, so yes. the performance. Um, so I was just saying that, like, I felt, I feel like um, that. It's easy for me to be... It's not that hard for me to be naked. Uh, I was curious to do... I wasn't really afraid of doing the performance. I was afraid, like, there might be a crazy person or something like that. Um, It was interesting. I mean, it was a fascinating experience. I can't um, say how much I enjoyed it because I didn't really... It wasn't fun necessarily, but it was a great experience. Um... It got a lot of press, which was very separate from my experience, which was being in that room, having people file in and sit down and cross from me. Um, I guess there was people outside. Like, I didn't see a group of people or a crowd or anything like that. So that was my experience, and uh, I'm grateful to have had it. I am thrilled at how the press came out in the sense that 
it said that I was calling bullshit on the art world, uh, which communicated clearly. And, like, it got a lot more, you know, p- press in, like, regular newspapers, the Post, the Daily News, than it did in the art press. It got some, but it's mm-hmm. it, I would consider that press-wise way more of a success in general than in art. Mm-hmm. For me, the piece also, aside from referencing... Abramovich's piece directly I think it also brought to mind other artwork performance artworks from the 60s such as Yoko Ono's cut piece from 64 in the sense that you are also involved in presenting the female body in confrontation with the spectator Mm -hmm. and in regards to nudity the work brings to mind 60s and 70s feminist performance art by mm-hmm. artists such as Valley Export, Anna Mendieta, and Carolee Schneeman, to mm-hmm. name a few. Mm-hmm. The connection to this era connotes a certain seriousness mm-hmm. uh, representing yeah. that legacy. And then, of course, the, the, the presence of the toilet subverts this with a kind of um, humor, mm-hmm. as if almost referencing like the immaturity of like the whoopee cushion or the fart joke you know like right. being in that and so i see it as a subversion and an homage and an updating of the lineage of the female mm-hmm. performance art mm-hmm. form yeah um you know i was just thinking of how i could be the most vulnerable mm-hmm. and um that was really what i was thinking about because i felt that marina had no vulnerability that she was on a pedestal, and I wanted to have complete vulnerability. And by vulnerability, you also mean a moment of humility. Like it's yeah, humility. I don't think you can really be yeah. vulnerable without humility, right? Well, you said right. that you like that experience of being naked. Did you feel? Com- how did you feel? Did you feel comfortable or humiliated or mm. both? Did no. you fluctuate between those two? How? What? what the technicality of like uh, finding your figure there in a performative sense you know the technicality of it did you undress at the side when did the performance like begin was there an act of undressing or did you already uh, sat like the performance start when you were there naked in front of people and uh, how was that navigated well there was a bathroom in the gallery I went in there took off my clothes I had bought a bathroom and slippers just plain white and uh, I put them on and I went out there and there was a place I had made to hang up my bathroom and I sat down I mean there were start times and end times Uh, I felt I did not feel humiliated at all I felt very in the moment Uh, there was a trance because I was sitting there a long time and I didn't talk, right? So it, it, there was sort of like a trance. I felt there was a trance-like state almost, which I didn't expect or was fine, you know. Um, but I felt very much a blank screen. I felt like what was really interesting was how different people came to the situation. You know, like people wanted to take their clothes off. People mm. wanted to bring things. People brought their children people so everybody had their own idea about what they were interpreting they were projecting onto me mm-hmm. what they the experience was for them and i thought that was fascinating yeah i found a quote from one of the publications at the time as you had said i'm most excited about 
the experience, and I'm really curious to see how people will react. It's a social experiment, like a lot of my work, unquote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Did I say that? No, that's, <laughs> you found that? No, that's exactly how I felt about it. I performed another thing about a year later, about a year ago, Naked. Did did you ever? Did you ever I, yeah. It's a piece I'm actually really proud of. It's on the internet, but you can't. Um, I, so yeah, it would have been in 2017, the following year? Or 2018, year? I think okay. two years later. But um, it was done as part of a evening of performances in an art gallery. And I was standing on the... Uh, in the window, actually, it was like a little, kind of like a stage, but in the window of the gallery, and I was naked. And what I'd done was circled um, five of my most important scars. And um, I had stage zero breast cancer. I'm fine. That was ten years ago. So I have a scar there. I had an ovary removed when I was 18. So I have a scar there and other scars. Um, and I just had like a funny storytelling, like event or like a funny storytelling show, you know, brief show, whatever, about all the scars and how I got them and how I felt about them. And it was called Traveling Through Time in My Body. And it was really pretty cathartic. I really, you know, I'm 63. um, And I'm really grateful to be as comfortable. I think I'm more comfortable now in my body than I was when I was young, Mm -hmm. which I think I'm grateful for. And coming back to the performance, uh, you also said, I want to make it accessible as possible for people who don't know Marina Abramovic or don't know about her art. Right. Do you think that your work would be read and approached differently, if not the big icon? Um, well, it wouldn't exist without Marie. My, that piece wouldn't exist if Marina Abramovic hadn't done that. So, but I think that if you don't get the reference, you can still appreciate it. I'm, that's what I, I, I like art that's accessible. I like when people can enjoy the art. For me, it's important that people can get something out of my work, whether they know anything about art or not. I mean, not everybody's like that, Not you know, but I mean, not all art should be like that or can be like that. Not all of my work is like that, but I like to think that I, for me, you know, I say this is my artist statement. I mean, part of what's really important to me is to connecting with people because I felt, feel so isolated and, you know, so weird and outside. And art's actually helped me with that. But, um, so when I, it's a way of connecting, like I'm really, you know, I was really isolated in my family growing up. And so I just want to feel like present and then, mm-hmm. you know, connected. And yeah, that's, so the artwork works on multiple levels. On the one hand, it's a commentary about the original piece. And then there's this authentic aspect of like the connection. Yeah, that, where that is a part of the original's pieces underlying did you feel connected with the visitors because you said that you were suspending your thought that it was a meditative state blank state so were you navigating between like the connectedness and was there something intimate in that moment would you describe that process a little more of the connectedness yeah i mean that's an interesting question because it was intimate and not intimate i mean i was very aware and cognizant of like everybody in front of me at and it, very much in the moment um but 
I wasn't connected to each individual in the way that I would be on the radio, on stage, or maybe if I was around a bunch of like paintings that I had made. Like there was no, I felt like they were more projecting onto me. Um, But there was also a connection in that like they came there to see me. And they were in. They were right there with me, and we were there together. So maybe it wasn't as personal with each person, but I think that that feeling of we're here together for that moment was present a lot. So it was more like a collective connectedness, like feeling the connection w- with network of people, the community that was there temporarily formed around the gravity of your body and its truth in its very present state that could be you know alienating and shaming for some but at the same time it was like this humbling thing well i mean it was kind of funny because i felt like you know that i mean there were a lot of pe- people that i didn't didn't know so but there was something that was great about that I was just there present for them and it was no big deal so I think like that was I think that everybody that sat with me um took some risk on their part and I appreciated that and I knew that I mean that was really obvious and then you know of course I saw a lot of people I know they would come I couldn't talk to them um, and then, you know, I was always like, oh, look who came, <laughs> you know. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah. yeah, it was great to see people respond. Incidentally, I had read somewhere at the time or shortly after Marina's original performance at MoMA that she um, wasn't wearing contacts, that she usually wears contacts, um, and that mm-hmm. she couldn't really see the person. I do think there's a projecting element, like, you know, the, yeah. the, the person projects all these qualities onto the other right. person. I did feel that there would be something there, this reciprocal thing, but then having read that she wasn't wearing her glasses and couldn't see the other participant well, that shifted it for me. Well, also, Marina Abramovic is very much into, like, meditation and stuff like that. So for her, like, I think she, I don't practice meditation and like I think that, and also she takes herself really seriously so I imagine that experience for her which was a real for sure you know um, durational thing I mean I think that was much more of the experience for her the duration of it um, but you know the most searched question I found this out the most searched question about that show was how she went to the bathroom I mean there was so much discussion about it which leads us back to you. How did you go your, to the bathroom? To, well, to your question, because, <laughs> I mean, to your proposition that I've just placed the toilet in the gallery, <laughs> those weren't actually functioning toilets. No, though, no. But there was still, the idea that, that they They are. were real toilets. They could have been functioning. <laughs> there was no plumbing hooked up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> were, were there any people that you knew well that were uh, your friends or your colleagues or, or was everyone that you have not met before oh no no there were you know I mean there was quite a good amount of people I knew or you know knew you know maybe I didn't know them that well but Mm -hmm. yeah there were definitely people plenty of people I knew 
any ex-boyfriends uh-huh. <laughs> because for uh marina abramovic i think opening oh yeah opening her, one, yeah ule, ule her long time collaborator from uh, from the 80s mm-hmm. and 70s uh mm-hmm. joined for the sitting and it was supposed to be a surprise um, yeah. They they actually their breakup was also iconic. They walked China. the wall of China yeah. and then they met in the middle and they gave each other the mm-hmm. last hug. Such an epic, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's apoca- a big deal. apocalyptic breakup of the century. <laughs> and then they sat down, reunited at MoMA at artist's presence. So he yeah. also kind of catered and accommodated for the victory of her persona and and the icon. Uh, that she's now the celebrity and the fame and the money, but he, uh, she, but in that moment, uh, I felt like maybe she was surprised. I projected, you know, maybe she really was surprised and she was happy sh- to see him. Sure. Uh, but uh, uh, would you imagine that situation uh, happen? <laughs> uh, somebody like, oh my god, you, you. came to see me <laughs> on the After toilet. So long. <laughs> um, Have a seat. Let me take yeah. a crap. I don't know. I don't know what I would have done if it like somebody like that. I really like if it was somebody was like, oh, my God, you're here. I have to talk to you. I don't know how how I would have reacted. But uh, it was funny how unpossessive my husband was. Totally. Like in the, the first person that sat down was kind of a dirty old man. And I I was like. <laughs> get this guy out of here and no one he was like eh, whatever you know it's up to her whatever but he he did insist on being the last person to sit with me so oh, that's with nice his clothes ending. he didn't take his clothes off or anything did other people some a people lot did. of people took their clothes off. no but it oh. wasn't uncommon oh wow yeah I mean, you were talking about boyfriends so a friend of mine's boyfriend came or ex-boyfriend and like the first thing he did was strip everything off not somebody I see that often, Completely. but he, yeah, he was just dying to get his clothes off. Dying. <laughs> a lot of people. I mean, there were people that really wanted to take their clothes off. So wow. you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. And yeah. speaking yeah. of ex-boyfriends, if I can refer to the vitrine that you have in your apartment, oh yes, with the remnants which are rem- proof uh, of their love. Gifts men have given me, nineteen eighty-six exactly. through nineteen ninety-seven. It's a remarkable piece. Do you consider it an art piece? Yeah. Would have you, you shown it? Would you talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So actually, I have. I have shown it. It's um. It's a really big job to move because it's a display case, but I've shown it um, probably around five times or something at least. Uh, it's a piece that, always, you know, it's in our apartment. People people really do respond to it. I think, you know, it's definitely an, a piece out of all my work that people respond to. And uh, I made it for a show about like a Valentine's Day show in 1987 and I don't know I made a little book of it first but somebody I don't know I wound up like collecting just going around I had dated a lot I met my husband who was my boyfriend for a long time before he became my husband um, when I was 42 in 1998 so I was really single or dating from 1987 or 86 to that time because I didn't have you know one boyfriend that I mean that they were all short relationships or whatever 
uh, so I'd accumulated all this detritus, as they say. But, you know, just like, I mean, it's just so funny how we all relate to, like, those dumb little things that we give somebody that has a special meaning. You know, we all have that, right? Like, one of the things there was a guy I was crazy about, and he took me on a date to F.A.O. Schwartz, <laughs> and he bought us two matching sub uh, taxis, taxi cabs. Two toy cabs. Oh, little I like a real cab? No, two toy matching. And I just remember like thinking I was in heaven. He bought us matching taxi cab toys. Oh my God. Like things like that and just how silly the things are. I mean, there's tampons in there that guys have given me. There's Oh like run to the store, get me some tampons. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and Oh, uh, any other uh, remnants? There's crazy shit. I mean, there's jewelry. There's I saw a bra, a bra, and, and, like uh, stuffed animals. I'm trying to stuffed remember animals. like there's, the most ridiculous presents. Well, there, there's one I'm thinking of now. It's one of those um, play. I don't know, like a for for an infant where you pull it. It's a round thing, and you pull it, and you hear like animal sounds, different animal sounds. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Like an infant's toy? Yeah, kind of. Okay, you know, you know, you know what? Well, the That's most weird. ridiculous present I ever got was a pound of coffee for Christmas from someone I was dating. And I was so mad. I was like, you keep your coffee. Yeah. What right. is that? What kind of gift is that? Women don't want coffee. That's like a gift you'd get like <laughs> with somebody at work. That's like the least personal it was, gift. Yeah. Anyway, but I drank it. It was good coffee. Oh, it was good coffee, at least. Yeah, so stuff stuff like that. So he knew I liked animals, and we would, like, laugh about how I, you like the animals. And so it made all these animals. It was like a farmer toy, to farmer animal sounds, which I think is very clever and really funny. Oh, my God. The, the weirdest gift that I got from a guy that I was dating was this necklace that had a rhinestone angel sounds i mean it, it sounds tacky it, but it sounds sweet. at least that's romantic yeah but it was after we get her complaining sec- no 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 but yeah. listen to this you have high standards it was the second date uh. it was the second date and he told me that he's thinking seriously and he wants me to have this gift he oh wow a lot of pressure yeah a lot oh, of pressure was, yeah that he's serious that he doesn't want to date anybody else just like he's serious about me and i almost felt like it was like a pre-engagement thing uh-huh uh because it was an angel and i'm not religious and he knows that uh so i felt like are you gonna be watching over me now is he like a mm. guardian angel you know what i mean like uh, i got weirded out In- inappropriate uh, <laughs> it was inappropriate. So yes, on one side it's like romantic and everything, but then when when you think about the context, well, as a fake therapist, I would just say that's very controlling. Like right. he was giving you the gift, um, so he could sort of own you or expect something in return without mm-hmm. even knowing me well. Um, he was it, hoping it was infatuation, but from the start, I felt like this wasn't a good direction. <laughs> to, it's like the go, polar I mean, opposite of the coffee. I mean, yeah, yeah, right. try, like in the creepy way. Maybe, maybe that's why you guys, there's the opposite. It was, you guys yes, get it, along oh so my well. God. <laughs> it was creepy, but I gave him the chance. It was like three months, but then I felt the controlling thing. There yeah, you go. Very controlling. There you go, Lisa. Right? You got yeah. this. You, know, you got this down. And you just whip it out from your pocket. I, eat, I, 
you're a therapist on call and like on demand. <laughs> I think that guys that move in really quick and want to take over are guys who have issues and they think like once I meet, they have intimacy issues and they all think once I meet the right woman, it will all fall away and I'll be in love and everything's going to be great. But the problem is it's with them. They can't have they can't develop a relationship over time and have it have different qualities so they just want a solution mm-hmm. and that's my it take sounds, like a, lot, it sounds like a lot of women have that too with the um you know the prince charming thing like yeah women we all have that yeah, yeah everybody has some of that we all have that but, yeah, I, wanted but I, just to, um, I wanted to ask you about your paintings because we haven't really talked at any length about that mm-hmm. um, I kind of touched on it the um, Ankara mm-hmm. reference yeah, and no, aesthetically and I read some of the quotes that were in the paintings um, maybe you can describe how the paintings emerged for you okay so it um it's a series that I started in 2011 uh, it's ongoing there's about 80 80 paintings now 80 different sayings and uh, it's a series called The Thoughts in My Head. And each painting is signed The Thoughts in My Head, and it's numbered by the thought. Mm-hmm. Like, they each each thought has a corresponding number. And um, that's literally the thoughts in my head. Like, what I do when I am just awake, <laughs> anytime I'm awake, <laughs> or, you know, if I wake up in the middle of the night, with, I, and I have a an idea that I think would make a good painting, I will write it down and text it to myself or send myself an, oh, e- yeah. send myself an email. So I have a file on my desktop uh, right now that says, um, you know, l- lines 2019. And then every time I have a show of them, I go into the files and I try and pick out some it's getting harder because I have a lot of good ones and I feel like I have to, like last summer I had a show and it was painful because um, I really needed some new lines and we wound up using some of the old classic ones because, you know, it, it's getting harder and harder. Mm-hmm. But I, f- I would assume that one thought spurs the next thought and the more you think along those lines the more it just comes to you? Yeah, sometimes, like, if I'm working on a show of those paintings, I'll wind up doing a lot more of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't force poetry, so I can imagine that if writer's block settles, you know, over you, then there's just nothing you can do about it, right? Well, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, I'll probably, you know, I mean, I write, write it. It's just something I live with, really, mm-hmm. because I'm always writing it down writing things down and and sending them to myself so it's not something it's just something that I'm part of that's part of what I do every day or not I mean I don't do it every day but I'm listening for it all the time friends will stop me people that I know really well and they'll say that's a good painting like Uh they'll make it part of the they'll like listen to my conversation they'll be like make that a painting Uh go ahead right um, how how long have you been making art? I know a little bit about your background. You were in a totally different field um, uh, up until a certain point, and then you made a... You um, mean a, advertising? Right, advertising. I don't know what position particularly, yeah. but then you made a, a pretty abrupt 
shift? Well, what happened was, um, so when I was, you know, I lived in Manhattan and my parents sent me to art school when I was three and a half because I had an older brother who went at MoMA, Museum of Modern Art. Mm -hmm. I have paintings hanging in my apartment. I don't know if you saw them from 1959. Wow. And uh, they actually... Made at the MoMA. At MoMA, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I have... So, and, you know, my father was an architect for the public housing, the government. He had a government job. And we lived in Manhattan until I was eight. And we would go to museums and, you know, I... I had the good fortune, whatever I got from my parents, they were cultivated. Um, And, you know, I always had art school after school, art classes, you know, at the Community Arts Center. And when I went to college, the only thing I was really, I wasn't good at school or anything. The only thing I was good at was art. I wasn't even particularly the best. I was just, that was the only thing I could do. And uh, when I so I studied illustration. I I thought being an artist, like going to school and being an artist, is like the stupidest idea ever. Like that was just so indulgent and wasteful. And why would anybody? And like artists, I didn't like artists. I thought they took themselves too seriously. I still have that problem a lot. You were uh, so wise at such a young age. <laughs> I don't know. No one took me seriously. That's part. And um, I really, really, really wanted to make a living. Like, I was really concerned about being on my own, supporting myself. And um, I also used to get fired from a lot of jobs because I was so afraid of authority that I would be, like, so withdrawn. And I was afraid of, I was afraid I was going to get yelled at. Like, my mother would yell at me and criticize me Mm. all the time. So I was just so afraid so I'd get like a job at the record store at school but then I would be so like paranoid that they'd be like what is this person is so freaky weird they won't talk to me the I wouldn't talk to the boss I wouldn't talk to my teachers I just tried to avoid them and uh, I wound up getting fired from a lot of jobs so I was pretty paranoid but um so I studied illustration in the commercial art department of Syracuse which kind of helped me set me up um through hook and by crook I wound up getting a job in advertising I met some people in advertising I wound up being a junior art director when I was 26 and I worked in that business until my mid 50s 2011 and I wound up getting fired from this job I had where I was the art director creative director for the Verizon direct mail account at McCann MRM, and I had a really hard time getting a job, full-time job after that, and I got married, and uh, I have an apartment I make that I rent, I have some money coming, Mm. not a lot, but, so, so, yeah, so it helped stabilize, yeah, yeah, so I was, I have the, you know, good fortune, yeah, because, I mean, being an artist is such a risky endeavor, and one ends up often, like, it's an investment, more than it is a, a way to make a living. So well, really I also I also feel like, you know, your art is your children, and I'm glad I never had to pimp mine out. That's how I feel about it. But I also, I mean, I really did try to make an art career while I was working. Like, I mean, I worked minimum 50-hour weeks. I mean, I was an art director. I worked minimum 50-hour weeks. And I would use my office. I had like an office and I used to say, this is like being at Staples and everything's free. 
So I would have, I would go there on the weekends and I would make all my work. I would use a studio there. Uh, I had to keep it quiet because people did not want to know that you had an interest outside of being an art director. The piece where I was naked, I could never do that today. Mm-hmm. I could never have done that. I would have been fired. I would have mm-hmm. been afraid. I couldn't afford to lose my job. Right. So I really tried to make a lot. I did. I mean, I think I did make a lot happen. I tried to make a lot happen. I started um, making art in my late 30s. And what I did was I wound up putting text. I hadn't like said I'm going to be an artist, but I wound up putting text on the objects. And um, like I made these socks that said, put yourself in my shoes, mm-hmm. silk screened and um, I had different things. Mm-hmm. And then I went up selling them at museum stores, mm-hmm. selling them to museum stores. And that's how I got started. And then I put a portfolio together. I had enough, enough of those things and I went up getting in shows. So mm-hmm. I'll oh, take this really opportunity. fascinating to hear your strategy. Everyone has their own strategy for continuing to make art as artists and it's really fascinating well, to I hear feel like, your story I feel like I'm lucky in that I fell into it I didn't really set out like I never really thought about being an artist seriously being an artist I mean like when I was a little kid people say what are you going to be when you grow up and say an artist but um, I wound up kind of like falling into it because I wound up just putting what I did was I worked really hard on my portfolio as an art director to always get a better job and so I was always working outside of my job and then once I got to a certain point I didn't need to work on my portfolio anymore so I had all this time and energy I mean I would stay in all summer working on you know on my portfolio and stupid what a fucking waste that's all i can say (laughs) you became an artist or you added that to the spectrum of your identities in your late 30s yeah but see that's it was organic funny yeah it really was because i wound up putting texts on these things and i just thought of selling them like which i did i put them i remember making things out of dollar bills like mm-hmm. ribbon bows jewelry i really got into making jewelry first actually like earrings out of matchbook covers like matching matchbooks and all this stuff and i was selling it in little stores so then i mean and that was pre computer for me and then i would take like those stick on letters and put it on things like i put it on clocks i'd rather ask the time then be told it you know things like that and so it just and then I thought well I'll just try to take them to this museum store and I was just shocked I brought five items I'll never forget it I brought five items it was in like 93 and I said uh and I said you know I made the appointment and I was all nervous and I brought them in she goes oh these are great I'll take all of this and right. I just remember walking out. So you made an appointment with the manager, the yeah. buyer. Yeah, the buyer, mm-hmm. the manager, really. Right. It was a small place, you know. Cool. Um, so. I'll take this opportunity to make an announcement. If you're thinking about starting a new podcast or just want to get yours out of your kitchen, garage, basement, and into a professional studio where it belongs, RFB offers a low hourly rate podcast recording service, which includes a technician. So all you have to do is show up and record. As a special thanks to our listeners, uh, we are offering this unique service. And um, it, our studio is located on Bogart Street in Williamsburg, very close to L Train, um, off of Morgan Stop. 
it's a uh, service available seven days a week from 8 to 11 uh, 8 a.m to 11 p.m um, it's good for voiceovers news content and audiobooks um, go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash podcast studio again go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash podcast studio very and well done yeah. <laughs> nice any last thoughts before we conclude and we just want to thank you again for being with us yeah. today it's been really amazing and enlightening to hear all your details about all your projects and and your trajectory of your career well i'm so glad you guys had me on i really and they're really really interesting questions and um it's helped me really think about things that i haven't thought about before so i'm really grateful to you guys absolutely it was so nice to have you and actually i i do have a question i would love to hear your involvement how you got involved with the radio free brooklyn community and the nucleus of people that jump started 2015 may 2015 was our first show would you just briefly elaborate how we got involved and what was important for you then and how that you know contributed because that the, this was the beginning of... Uh, yeah, so shit. I was really lucky in the sense that I happened to be at a party that uh, Reverend Jen, a friend of mine, was having, and Tom was there. And I know I didn't know Tom very well, Tom Tenney, but I know that he had done this other really cool uh, remix festival that had done pretty well. And I thought he was good at getting... You know, he, he impressed me. And it just... He somehow mentioned it at the party. We just started talking about it. And I said, you're doing, uh, a, really? I'd love to do a radio show. And he was like, okay, great. Send me some information. And actually, because I had done that audiovisual project with BAM, I had all these sessions and interviews already, and especially with like some fairly well-known people. So I just sent those, and that's how how I got started with him and I'm yeah I mean it's been it's been over four years now and I I mean I'm really like so grateful to have had this chance to build this yeah and for our listeners they should definitely check out your show it's on Thursdays two to three Thursdays from two to three yeah or you can look it up online Dr. Lisa gives a shit or my uh, Instagram is at dr Lisa Levy SP and your upcoming show is this coming Friday, Friday. October 18th, when you mentioned 7 there? p.m. It's part of the Bad Theater Festival, so you can look up the Bad Theater Festival, and it's going to be at the Brick Theater, which is on Lorimer Street, or off the Lorimer Stop, 575 Metropolitan in Williamsburg. Great. Yeah, let's check this out. Thank you so much Thank for being you. here, Lisa. Thank you so much. And on our way out, we're listening again to singer-songwriter Evo, spelled I-V-O, Dimchev, and his song, I Cannot. And Evo is a singer-songwriter performer and physical theater artist. Last month, he performed his theater production that also includes his singing entitled Sculptures at the Theater Rotterdam in the Netherlands. To keep up to date with his projects and music, you can follow him on Instagram at Evo Dimchev and on Spotify. Thank you. Bye. Next time. With you in heaven, walk back, natural broken bones and burnt flesh. I know, I know for sure.